during, it was during this moment that Peter wields his sword, strikes the air of a gentleman by the name of Malchus, who was probably the leader of the battalion. And Jesus tells Peter to put his sword back when not leading resistance. And then he heals the heir of Malchus. What becomes particularly peculiar to me as I began to look over this story again was these were the same guys who were just hours later. These are the same men who were just hours later after witnessing the heir being cut off from Malchus. They would be among the people who would actually be bruising our Lord. And that just struck me as, wow. From there, having looked through the whole gospel writers, the next step, they take Jesus to Annas, the priest. Now, this is only accounted for by the gospel of Luke, and there's nowhere else. All the other gospel writers say they went to Caiaphas, which was the next step. So they go from Annas. So Jesus is now moved from the garden by force. He's taken to Annas, a high priest, and who was not the high priest that year. And then he was taken to Caiaphas, where all the men, or most of the men of the council had already met. In other words, this was already planned that they would get Jesus this particular evening. So in the middle of the evening, you have Caiaphas, the high priest and the scribes, now accusing Jesus and trying to find fault with Jesus. Well, they finally came upon a place where they condemned Jesus, and they're condemning Jesus for the fact that Jesus claimed that he was the Son of God. That's the claim, and that's the charge of blasphemy. So that will be one of the things we examine today in the book of Mark. However, from Caiaphas, from, from this condemnation now, they have to wait till morning. Because, and I think Pastor Moss touched on this last week, because to make this legal, they had to wait till morning. They couldn't condemn you until morning. So the council met again in the morning. So Jesus now goes from Annas, he goes to Caiaphas, where they had met, and now they go to the council early morning, probably the crack of dawn. From there, they, they, they immediately raised the charge, and within practically minutes, they whisked Jesus off to Pilate to be crucified. Pilate, bless his heart to some degree, and I'll explain, makes an attempt to try. Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He, he is quite aware that the man before him is probably not guilty. In fact, Mark states that he, re- he realized that they were men of envy. So Pilate is doing everything in his power to not condemn Jesus to death. So he finds out that, that Jesus is from the area of Galilee. So I got it. So he sends him to Herod. Thanks to, um, I think Luke is the only one that records this. He goes to Herod. And then Herod just wants to have a, a, a playtime with Jesus. He wants Jesus to perform a miracle. But Jesus says absolutely nothing while he's with Herod. Obviously, they mock him. They beat him. So he's whipped back to Pilate. So 
Jesus is before Pilate a second time. The book of Mark only records Jesus as being before Pilate once. Okay? So they, 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 just, they just lop it all into one thing. So Pilate goes to Herod, then he comes back. Sorry, so Jesus gets to Herod and he comes back to Pilate. And Pilate again is trying to get Jesus off the hook. But the Pharisees and the scribes are not letting up. Jesus, Pilate, in attempting to get Jesus off the hook, says, you know what? I'll beat him up a little bit. I'll let my man have a go at it. So he sends him off to his men to scourge him. He brings Jesus back, and this time, according to the book of John, when Jesus comes back to Pilate, he is now dressed in royal garb. They say scarlet. Okay, like a scarlet robe. He has the crown of thorns on his head, and he's whisper. And Pilate says, "Behold your king." A key phrase: "Behold your king." And then he gives him the option of Barabbas or the king, and they choose Barabbas. So Jesus is before Pilate for the third time, trying to plead his case. And Pilate, seeing no other way out, he sends Jesus and condemns him to die. My sermon title today is Jesus Before Pilate. Let us pray for a moment. Father, as we look into the scriptures this morning, and as we seek to understand your word more clearly we ask you that we may have ears that hear eyes that see and hearts that are willing to follow be with us now as we look at these moments of Jesus before Pilate in your name we pray Amen my sermon text is from Mark chapter 15 and for those of you in radio or or Radio Land, or um, out there listening to my voice right now, we as a church are going through the book of Mark, and we just so happen to be landing on Mark chapter 15. And we'll be reading Mark 15, 1 to 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You said, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, whom had committed murder in, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For well, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, 
then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they all, they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his clothes, his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. They wanted him dead, silenced, crucified. The hostility was at a feverish, a feverish pitch. They even favored Bar Barabbas over Jesus. Barabbas, a known robber and a murderer. What did Jesus do to trigger such hostility? How did they get here? How did they get there? How do people... Listen, how do people, even religious leaders, arrive at a place where they will plot and execute a plan that will result in the crucifixion of a man, yea, even the miracle-working son of man, who healed the sick, cast out the demons, and raised the dead with a simple spoken word? How do you get there? And what of complacency? How is it that a person in authority who bears witness to such hostility yield to the demands of those wanting blood, yielding to the very ones he suspects are guilty of envy? What causes a person to go along acquiescing to what is clearly a travesty of, the, of justice? In my sermon today, I wish to point out two thoughts that flow out of the text. We know what happens when hostility meets up with complacency, that's for sure. But why the hostility? And why the complacency? My first, why the hostility? Of particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's now turn to the Gospel of Mark to see if we can determine why the scribes, Pharisees, and elders had become so filled with rage so as to want Jesus dead, crucified. In the opening chapter of Mark, we read that Jesus commences his ministry and enters the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath and immediately began teaching. The people were astonished. Mark 1.22 reads, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Notice the comparison made by the people in the synagogue. 
Jesus' teaching was different. Spoken with more authority, unlike the scribes. While they're in the synagogue, Jesus even heals a man of an unclean spirit. Jesus speaks with more authority, and he cleanses a man of an unclean spirit. They had never seen that before. As a result, Jesus' fame at once spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus goes to the home of Simon Peter and heals his mother-in-law of a fever. People began to hear of these healings and began flocking there at Peter's home. And even though it was sundown, Jesus healed many and cast out demons that evening. Undoubtedly, the news of these miraculous healings and authority and, and the authority undoubtedly the news of these miraculous healings and the authority from which Jesus spoke got the attention of the chief priests and the scribes. So some of them were dispatched to Capernaum. The very next morning, Jesus leaves Capernaum and goes to other towns in Galilee preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. He heals a leper. And after some days, Jesus returns to Capernaum. When the people got wind that Jesus had returned there, a large crowd gathers at the house, presumably Simon Peter's house, with the scribes among them. This would be the first record in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus encounters any of the religious establishment, and in this case, the scribes. The stage is set, and it is ripe with excitement, and anticipation. Mark 2, 1 to 12, records this first encounter. A paralytic is let down through the roof of the house where a host of people have gathered with great expectations. Everyone anticipates what they have come to see. Jesus' next move would be to wow the crowd, healing the paralytic. But instead, Jesus says the unexpected. And for the scribes, utters the unthinkable. Son, your sins are forgiven. No doubt, there was silence from everyone. A pause, perhaps even a bewilderment of the crowd. That's it? That? Your sins are forgiven? And from the silence, Mark records for us in verses 6 to 12 the reaction of the scribes. Their thoughts, which was known to Jesus. Let's read it. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Their response to Jesus' declaring that the paralytic sins as being forgiven, and I'm talking about the scribes, is met by the thoughts that Jesus is being blasphemous. I want to pause just for a minute. A paralytic just got up, who was a paralyzed man, he is, and they are thinking Jesus is being blasphemous. I, I, I'm just baffled. I, I, I'd just be wowed if it was me. Like, whoa, what just happened? But their thoughts are met. Being, um, their response to Jesus is declaring the paralytic sins as being forgiven is met by thoughts of Jesus being blasphemous. For only God can forgive sins. These were mere thoughts that Jesus exposes and makes public. Now, I want to stop and say something clearly here again. A lot of us live in this world where we think that Jesus is this meek and mild, let everything go type of person. You know, ruffle no feathers. He doesn't force you to think. He just rules you and does everything nice and wonderful. Jesus is a confronting Jesus. And he does it here. They were mere thoughts that Jesus exposes and he makes their thoughts public. Now we're getting at the why the hostility of the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus performs two miracles before the people. First, he reads the minds of the scribe, and secondly, he heals the paralytic. Now take a look at verses 10 and 11 again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Who did they think was only, who did they think was only able to forgive sin? God alone. They thought that to themselves. But then again, who is the only one who can read minds? Who is the only one who can heal a paralytic? But God alone. Are they convinced? The scribes refuse to connect the dots and see what is patently obvious. In Mark 2, 13 to 17 records the second encounter. Jesus had called Levi to one of his disciples, uh, uh, to be one of his disciples. And so they went to Levi's home where they were reclining at the table. Apparently, it became the business of the Pharisees to now follow Jesus every move 
Jesus is every move, and so they saw Jesus there dining with Levi, the tax collector. The Pharisees then asked, why does he choose to sit with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard it and said that he came for the sick and not for those who are well. Apparently, those who are righteous are not to sit and eat with those people. The sinners. You know them kind of people? Could this be one of those pious traditions? Mark 2, 28. The third encounter. The Pharisees are surely tracking Jesus' every moment, every movement by this time. But so much so that... This one was funny to me. But so much so that they're tracking Jesus through a grain field. Who does that? One Sabbath, Jesus was get going through the grain fields, and the disciples plucked the heads of grain, something that in their in the size mind must have been unlawful to do on the Sabbath. This undoubtedly came out of their understanding of what to work means when keeping the Sabbath. Jesus reminds them of a story of David eating the bread and bread that only the priests were supposed to eat. David even shared it with his men. Then Jesus says to them the unthinkable. Verse 28 reads, this is Mark 2, 28. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath? Pause and let that sink in a bit. We've probably read those words so many times that its actual meaning now escapes us. Is Jesus suggesting that he sits over the law and is the lawgiver? That's precisely what Jesus was saying. That he himself was the lawgiver. The very one who sits over the law. This is a clear claim to deity by Jesus. And the Pharisees knew it. I see that we might not be readily available, ready, readily conscious when we read, but they knew it. They knew what he meant. Mark 3, 1 to 6, the fourth encounter. On another Sabbath day, Jesus enters the synagogue. A man was there. A man was there with a withered hand. The Pharisees were just the Pharisees were just waiting to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Now, now think with me for a moment at how bizarre that is. These religious leaders, rather than being fascinated in anticipation of witnessing the restoration of a wither, you know, people are always talking in our day about who, who getting healing and all that sort of stuff. You know, I, you know, I'm not convinced personally, but if I saw a withered hand face off, become whole, now, hold on. Think with me for a moment. These religious leaders, rather than being fascinated in the situation of witnessing the restoration of a withered hand by Jesus in plain sight, they are waiting around just to see if he would dare heal this man on the Sabbath. Let that sink in for a moment. 
They are actually, listen, they are actually convinced that he can actually perform this miracle. Did you hear that? They're just looking to see if he can do it on the Sabbath. They're convinced he can do it. And he said to them, this is Mark 3, 4 and 5, and he said to them, is it lawful for, on, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them. This Jesus meek and mild. Listen. And he looked around at them with anger. Grieved at the hardness of their heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. Jesus didn't even say be healed, you know. He just told him to stretch his arm out. And it was healed. Here again we witness two miracles of Jesus. Jesus reads their minds again and restores them with a hand. But listen to Mark's record of the response of the Pharisees to this miracle and the reading of their minds. Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. bizarre. He restores a withered hand and they want to destroy him. Mark 3, 22, 30, the fifth encounter. The Pharisees, though not having witnessed yet Jesus casting out demons, make the claim that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. Jesus refutes this argument, argument using a simple and basic logic. How can Satan cast out Satan? Let me interject a thought at this point. How deceived or angry must you be in order for plain reasoning and logic to go out of the window? Failure to reason properly is caused by hearts that are simply want its way. Jesus exposes their, plan, their plain lack of reasoning. Undoubtedly, Rather than they see their own flawed logic, they are further infuriated. While they may not have witnessed Jesus actually casting a demon out up to this point, and I really went and studied that one, they would certainly later witness it in Mark's record in the chapters 9, 14 to 29, chapter 9, 14 to 29, just after the transfiguration of Jesus. Mark 7, 1 to 13, the sixth encounter. The Pharisees gathered to him with the scribes from Jerusalem, and they asked, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from the heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines of the, com the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother will surely die. But you say, 
If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have, have gained from me is Corban, that, that is given to God, Pastor Moss spoke on this, then you no longer permit him to do anything for the father or mother. Thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things like this you do. The Pharisees and the scribes were uh, incensed by the fact that Jesus' disciples are completely disregarding the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing how we can trample entirely over the command of God while at the same time express utter disdain when people pay little attention to our traditions. By the way, that's a voice for us all. Mark 8, 11 to 13. The Pharisees come to Jesus and demand a sign from him. Imagine demanding a sign. By the way, that's a miracle, okay? Imagine demanding a sign of someone whom you have already witnessed the miraculous. How insane is that? Jesus tells them that he is not giving them no such sign. And in fact, does not bow to any demands of performing miracles on demand to anyone. Mark 10, 2-9, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about divorcing an attempt to pit Jesus against Moses. Now you got to love this one. The people of the Jews love Moses. If you ever know anything about the Jews, Moses and David, that's the two. They're now trying to pit Jesus against Moses. And he rebukes them, saying that, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment, meaning you should give us you should give them a certificate of divorce. And then said, What therefore God has put together, let no man separate. Mark Mark eleven, fifteen and nineteen. Jesus returns to Jerusalem and drives out the sellers and the buyers of the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers, and he seats and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He allowed no one to carry anything through the temple. Jesus alone did this by himself. And then Jesus says, he's in the temple now. Is it not written, my house shall be called my house? Did you get it? My house? Is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer? But you have made it a den of robbers. Mark eleven seventeen. And then comes the response of the religious leaders. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowds was astonished at his, teach, at, his, at his teaching. It is said, and I think we know this in common language, it is said that if you really want to rattle somebody's cage, start hitting them really where it really hurts their pockets, the money. Jesus charges them, that is the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders, with creating a market of the temple where they rob people, even those, even those most desperate and needy. 
Mark 11, 27 to 33, they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus says, he will answer them. If they answer whether the baptism of, of John was from heaven or from man. And they discussed it to one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say. Now you got to remember now, this is in front of a crowd. And keep this in mind, okay? This is not one-on-one, in front of a crowd. If we say, why then did you not believe him? Uh, um, if, if it says from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Which clearly meant they didn't believe. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered him, we don't know. Shows you some integrity, right? Jesus unmarks their hypocrisy. How could they not admit that John was a prophet? Mark 12, 1 to 12, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants that ends with, and I read from verse 10, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, and they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Mark twelve thirteen to seventeen. The Pharisees attempts to trap Jesus containing the taxes. They asked him if it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. He asked for a coin, and Jesus faces on it, and he says. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Mark 12, 18 to 27, the Sadducees take, take their shot and ask Jesus about the resurrection. Jesus flat out tells them, is this not the reason why you are wrong? Again, remember now, this is in front of a crowd. Is this not the reason why you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Now think for a minute. How does it feel to be told that you are wrong in public? Imagine making an attempt to trap Jesus with a concocted story to be flat out told that you are wrong, you do not know the scriptures, And you do not know the power of God. Imagine the horror of hearing those words spoken to to clergy in front of people. How embarrassing embarrassing is that? Mark 12, 38 to 48. Speaking in the temple, Jesus gives a warning to the people concerning the scribes. Now, Jesus is at the temple. You hear me? At the temple. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honors of feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation. Imagine Jesus speaking of you like this 
in your domain. The temple over which you preside. Where Jesus speaks of the condemnation you will receive for the behavior of thinking yourself important. So in summary, so why, why when I did a long run, so, so why do you, why do you hostility? Let's rehearse it for a moment. Jesus defied their traditions. He ate with sinners and he didn't endorse their ceremonial washing of hands. He broke their Sabbath rules multiple times. He, he, by healing the sick and allowing the disciples to, to pick heads of grain to eat. And by the way, everything I'm telling you is from the book of Mark. If you read the other, if you read the other gospel writers, I could add a whole lot more and then this would have been twice, three times as long. But anyway, he broke their Sabbath rules multiple times. He charged them with disregarding the commandments of God in favor of traditions, declaring them as lawbreakers. Jesus dismantled their arguments and outwits them at every turn. He tells them they have hard hearts. He tells them that they are flat out wrong. They do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Isn't it ironic that the power of God is on full display in Jesus and yet they are completely dismissive of it. They make demands, and he ignores them. Jesus speaks out against them in a parable. Jesus goes into the temple and upends their money operations, saying that they are robbers. Their response? They want him dead. Crucified. Jesus exposes the truth about them. They love to be recognized. They love to adorn themselves with their robes and fine clothing to be thought of as special. They love the best seats in the house, places of honor. And oh, how they love to be eloquent in speech and prayers. Ah, to be the center of attention. Does that sound familiar to you? Because it should. But perhaps you're of a different sort. Which brings me to my second and final point. Why the complacency? We need not venture far to answer this one. For it is self-evident in the text. We Bahamians, I believe, are more akin to Pilate. Any residual hostility that, ling- that may linger is long buried and remains deep under the surface. Some, something else, however, is on the surface that is arguably more deceptive indifference deep down we know the truth Pilate knew it and even give deference to the truth Pilate was trying to get Jesus off the hook and that's the problem we don't believe There's a difference between knowing the truth and believing 
But rather, we live in acquiesce, in acquiescence. We're indifferent. What does it matter? There's so much going on in my life. So much to do. I'm just too busy right now building my business, furthering my education, pursuing my goals, and keeping safe. But indifference bites us all when we least expect it. And at that very moment of truth, we know what the right thing is. But it's just easier to play along and go with the flow. Should I do the right thing? Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things if I let it fly rather than take a stand? So pragmatism fails. We default to the course of action that is of least resistance and the least immediate threat. Rather than stand, we become pilots when we encounter those who are overtly hostile. Our indifference makes us like Pilate. We cower and let injustice prevail. Indifference does what it always does. It acquiesces and gives into the man's rather than face the fury of hostility. By the way, our Lord faced the fury of hostility. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent of the charges. Pilate even knew that the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the elders were full of envy. But none of that Mattered in the end. So what is Pilate's response? Mark 15, 15 reads. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And now some concluding remarks. You know, it's no different today. Just like Pilate succumbed to the hostility as opposed to seeking after the truth and standing on it, likewise, many remain in alignment with the world that desires to get rid of the Messiah, the Son of God. In the end, both the council, that is described elders and Pharisees, and Pilate were culpable for the execution of Jesus. One thing is certain, Christ exposes all of us and our sin wherever we are. Be we among the hostile or among the complacent. He exposes the heart, digging down deep into the dark crevices of the soul and unmasks his hostility that lies underneath and the veneer of an image that we fight to maintain. He sheds light on sin while we try to bury it. There's only one remedy for hostility and complacency. Just one. 
And for that I turn to the Apostle John. In the words that John, that Jesus said to Pilate, of all people, John 18, 37, reveals to us the words of Jesus at the most critical of moments and as Jesus is about to be condemned by Pilate. Then Pilate said to him, Jesus, so you are king? Jesus answered, you say I am king. For this purpose, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Let me go back. There's only one way to confront hostility and indifference and complacency. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So I ask you, I ask you out in, as you watch online, can you hear his voice? Are you listening? Those who are hostile want Jesus dead. Those who are complacent facilitate the demise of Jesus, the King. Both will receive their condemnation. Are you bearing witness to the truth? Are you listening to the King?